2 Samuel chapter 12, and let us uh, begin reading at verse number 15, the second half of verse 15. The Bible says, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child and fasted and went in and laid all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is now dead? He may do some harm. Now when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him. And he ate. And his servants said to him, what is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died... You arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. And went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah, people of Ammon, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together, went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it, put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. And then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. I want to begin tonight by reminding us that the one and true God of heaven loves to redeem what is lost and restore what is broken. He loves to redeem what is lost. He loves to restore what is broken. 
And the question is, how does he do this? The answer is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God sent his son Jesus to die and rise again that by his sovereign power he could put back together what sin had broken. And this this plan was, was essential because there was no other way for sinners to be restored to a holy God unless God in perfect flesh laid down his life in death in the place of sinners and then brought himself back to life again so that sinners could be brought back to life in him. This is an essential plan. Lives cannot be restored. What is lost cannot be redeemed unless Christ died and rose again. But this plan is also sufficient because there is nothing else needed besides Christ's death and resurrection to redeem what is lost and restore what is broken. His plan is essential. His plan is sufficient because God loves to redeem what is lost. He loves to restore what is broken. What does that have to do with our text? Well, everything. Because when we left David last Wednesday, we left him a broken man. Although God had been so good to David and poured out his gracious favor on his life and reign, David allowed his sinful heart to deceive him into walking down paths of unrighteousness. He took Bathsheba in an act of adultery. He then, in order to cover up the fact that she had become pregnant with his child, had her husband Uriah killed and then immediately took her to be his wife all of which he did to convince others that the child who would soon be born was conceived within a natural marital union. He's not only a sinner, he's a criminal. And to top it all off, we sit here tonight with the reality that this is God's chosen man, King David, who is guilty of these sinful crimes. So did what, what, what did God do upon these actions? Well, we first saw in chapter 11 that God, number one, saw it all. He saw it all. What David thought he was hiding from God, God saw more than anyone had seen. In verse 27 of chapter 11, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What did God do? He saw it all. He then sent the prophet Nathan to confront David. That's the first 12 verses of chapter 12. David was told pointedly by Nathan that he had despised the word of God and that now consequences for sin would follow. David confessed his sin. So what else did God do? Well, verse 13 through 15 tells us of chapter 12 that God put away David's sin. He put it away. 
That is, David confessed and repented and, and God forgave him. He would not bear the ultimate penalty of his sin, which would have been death. Instead, David will be restored to God, restored to the kingship, restored to a fresh and new beginning. Why? Because God loves to restore what is broken. Psalm 51, 17, the psalm that David would write in reflection to this period of time in his life, he said, a broken heart, a humble heart, God will never despise. So what we see here in the remaining verses of chapter 12 is David restored by the grace of God. Now, I want us to see this restoration in our text through three simple words. And these words helped me outline it. And I give them to you as headers to help you in your own further understanding of the text. Here's the first word as we think about David's restoration. It's the word heartache. All right? That's word number one. Heartache. I use heartache because there. There is a pain that sin's consequences bring. Now, I think it's important before we go too too far deep into that to remind ourselves that through these Old Testament stories, it's important that we look at ourselves through the lens of the gospel. And in the gospel, we see that Jesus took all of our punishment. That is, we we don't have to pay for the punishment of our sins because Jesus has already paid that punishment on the cross. So the gospel doesn't demand that we also pay for our sins when Christ has already paid for it. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. You see, to those of us who are trusting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior tonight, the punishment of our sin has been completely removed and put on Jesus Christ. That price he paid when he died for our sins. However, God does use the consequences of sin, whether they be natural consequences or supernatural, to lovingly discipline us. There are some lessons we have to learn through the sins that we commit. Hebrews talks about that. In fact, it was just a few months ago that we studied this passage in Hebrews chapter 12. The title of the message, if you'll remember, was God saying to us, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because I love you. So while God has taken the full punishment of our sin and placed it on the body of Jesus Christ through his death, there are consequences that follow that we have to learn some lessons through. And God uses these consequences to humble us, to mature us, And I think ultimately, 
to prevent us from going down that same road again. And by the way, that's not always a pleasant experience. And that's what the writer of Hebrews was saying in Hebrews chapter 12 when he said, no discipline from God is joyful. (laughs) It's painful. It hurts. So when we come to the events of this passage, we have to remind ourselves of a couple of things in light of that framework that I've just shared. The first thing we have to remind ourselves is that we are not David. Okay? Your name might be David, but you're not the David of the Bible. You're not David. I'm not David. And God doesn't always discipline his children the same way. We need to understand that from point number one, all right? The first thing about this, that just because God disciplined David in this manner doesn't mean that he's going to discipline you and I in the same manner, and that's true for any of us in this room. The second thing that we need to understand is that we should never assume, we should never assume that suffering and affliction automatically means that God is judging us or disciplining us for some scandalous sin. That's obviously what's happening here. But that doesn't automatically mean that that's what God is doing in your life or in someone else's life. But the third thing that we need to understand is that when we do sin and we do sin... God doesn't always stop the ripples of that sin from spreading in our life. Now, we have to go back to the quote that we concluded with last Wednesday night from Alec Mateer, the Irishman, the great theologian who said, repentance is like throwing a stone in a pond. You can get the stone back by presumably going into the water to get the stone back, but you can't stop the ripples from spreading. You can't stop the water from moving by going back in after the stone. And we see that to be true with David. He's repented. He's confessed. God has forgiven him. But there is some immediate heartache that he experiences as a result of his sin. Again, David's forgiven. David is being restored. But there are some scars that will remain the rest of his life. When I, when I see this little scar on my left hand pointed finger, I'm reminded that God was merciful in allowing me to keep my full finger. If, if you got an up close look, you'd see it starts right here on the front half and it goes all the way around to the bottom half. That's, that's because when I was just a, a little boy, instead of asking my mother to help me as I should have wisely done, I decided that I would cut the orange myself. Now, notice what I said. Cut it, not pill it. And at that age of my life, the only way that I realized, or the only way I knew how to cut an orange was with the biggest knife I could find. And so I grabbed the biggest knife that I can find. I'm holding the orange like this, and you know it's coming, right? All that little boy knew to do was, 
And right through half of that finger, it just was kind of dangling off. Now, my dad was cheap. I grew up in a generation where we didn't run to the urgent care for every little thing. And so dad didn't want to take the time to take me to the ER. So what did he do? He grabbed a popsicle out of the freezer. I had to suck on the popsicle. He put the popsicle on my finger, wrapped it up, and said, you'll be good in a couple weeks. So the scar remains. I carry that scar with me for 35 plus years. Being reminded of God's mercy that he allowed me to keep that finger. You see what I'm saying? The scar is there to remind me of God's mercy. That God graciously allowed me to keep the finger. He restored my finger. I also see it and have ever since never cut another orange the same way. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. And so it is with the consequences of sin. They're there to teach us a lesson to never go down that path again. Look at it in verse 15. The Lord struck or afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And the child became ill. Again, we must be careful not to link together sin and sickness. It's not always the case that someone's sickness is the direct result of their sin. Jesus even speaks to that in the New Testament. But in David's case, it is the reason. It is the reason why his child is sick. And it's extremely hard to deal with because it's the child. Again, the innocent child, not David, who is deathly ill. And I know we want answers for that. Pastor, please tell me why God afflicted the child and not David. Why was it the child? What did the child have anything to do with this? And the truth is tonight, I don't have an answer for you. And sometimes that's the best answer I can give you. I'm not going to pretend to be able to explain things about God that we'll never be able to understand until we see him and meet him face to face. I don't have an answer for why God chose this. Any assessment for why God chose this would be complete conjecture on all of our parts. But what I do know about God is this. I do know that every aspect of God's character is good. And I do know that every one, every one of his actions, every one of his choices are righteous. And it's not my place to counsel God, nor is it my place to argue with him. And a study of Job makes that completely clear. This affliction, without question, brought deep anguish and heartache to David's soul, as it would any parent in this room. Look at verse 16. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went in and laid all night on the ground. And so the elders of the house, they arose, they went to him to raise him up from the ground, to pull himself up, but, but he wouldn't, nor, nor, nor did he eat food with them. Now, now it tells us that this went on for seven days, seven days. As I mentioned last week, we believe the child was at least a year old, could have been as old as 
uh, two years of age. So, so there's relationship built, there's personality understanding, there is a parental attachment to this child. And for seven days, the child has been sick. The seventh day is the seventh day from the point that God afflicted it. It would be like going into the hospital and on the seventh day, on the seventh day, uh, someone passes who's been in there for that amount of time. So, so it is here. The child has been afflicted. The child has been sick. And on the seventh day is when the child passes. So for seven days, seven days while the child is still alive and breathing, David is on his face on the ground, weeping, fasting, praying, pleading, begging God to change his mind. Verse 18, and on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And as we can expect here, the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? This is not good. Have you not seen how David has been acting? There's no way. I'm not telling him. You have to tell him. No, 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 no. I'm not going to tell him. You're going to have to. Well, somebody's going to have to tell him. Well, we don't want to tell him. We don't want to tell him because you see how he's been grieving, how he's been mourning. He hasn't eaten any food for seven days. He's laying there on the ground, nearly naked, crying, playing, pleading. I can't go tell this man what he doesn't want to hear. There might be some harm done is what he says here. And the inference could mean harm to himself or harm to anybody else in that room. But when David saw the servants whispering about the whole situation, David perceived that the child was dead. And verse 19 says, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, yes, he's dead. Heartache. And sometimes the path to being restored begins with heartache. I want you to think about that. Sometimes the path to being restored to where God wants us to be begins with heartache. This is the pain that sin brings. But let's also see the strength that grace gives. We see the first word, heartache. The second word is grace. All right, we move from heartache to grace, grace. Now, when we come to verse 20, there, there is a dramatic change in David's posture. In fact, most everyone is surprised by it. Because for seven days, he's laid himself on the floor without food, pleading with God to change his mind and deliver their child from this illness that he was carrying. There's grief. There's mourning. It had dominated him. And rightfully so, by the way. God has made us people who will grieve and mourn when heartache and pain such as this comes into our life. So David is doing what we were created to do. This is natural. But now that the child has died... We see something different from David. Just like that, he picks himself up off the ground, he cleans himself up, and he changes into a fresh pair of clothing. And notice what he does first. Look at verse 20. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. That's the first thing he does. He picks himself up, he takes a bath, he cleans himself all, puts on a brand new pair of clothes, and he goes into the house of the Lord. And he worships. This is amazing to me because this is not only fruit of David's genuine repentance that the man who was running to hide from God is now the man who is running 
to meet with God, but we also see in David what is the first and necessary response to our seasons of grief, and that is entering the Lord's house for worship. Why should I worship, Pastor, when in my seasons of pain and grief, I don't have anything good to offer him? Well, you're missing the point. Because of David's own writings, we understand that the only thing David brought with him into the house of the Lord was a broken heart and a humbled spirit. Remember, he said, I have no sacrifices to bring you. You don't want sacrifices anyway. All I have to bring you is who I am and where I'm at at this moment of my life. And that is broken, humbled, and falling apart, frankly. But he still went into the house of the Lord. Can I remind us tonight that all of God's worshipers are damaged, broken, and suffering loss? All of us are. And in God's grace, he gives us the strength to step forward as broken and hurting people to be restored to the joy and healing of true worship. You've heard me talk about it in the season of my life last year when I felt like I was literally dying. I would have the worst Days, shaking with extreme panic attacks and anxiety to even walk inside this place. Oh, but every time I did and experienced the presence of God with his corporate people in singing and in ministry of the word, whether I was the one preaching or not, I left here a different person than when I came in. That didn't mean the grief went away right away. There was a great deal of time that God had to bring healing to my life. And even at this moment, it's still doing. But I am a testament of one who understands that God gives us strength when we do not have the strength in our seasons of grief to go forward as broken people and hurting people and then watch him in that corporate worship restore us to healing and joy through time in his house. That's what David is doing. Because putting God first and worshiping Him in seasons of pain is so important. By it, by coming to His house, by worshiping Him in seasons of pain, by it we're saying this, God, you are sovereign over all things. And I am here to worship, to express that I am trusting in your perfect plan for my life. Even though when I don't understand it, even though when I can't explain it, even though if I don't feel like I'm ever going to get through it, I am here in this corporate assembly choosing to worship you because I believe and am expressing to you that you are sovereignly in control of my life, that you've never made a mistake and you did not start in this season with me. And so I am trusting my life to you even when I don't get it. 
You see, David not only went to the house of the Lord, but look on in verse 20. He then decided he was ready to eat. Verse 20, as he requested, they set food before him. I don't know. Hamburger. It was in Israel. wasn't barbecue. We know that. Set some food before him, and he ate. In other words, in other words, he's resuming his normal activities. He's returning to his regular routines. He went through a season of grieving. But now he decides, it's time to clean myself up, go back to the house of the Lord and worship, and get back to my normal routines. Now, of course, this caught everyone's eye the previous seven days, and they're not sure as to why David is able to do what he's doing, given that this child has just died. They're confused as to why there's no grieving now. In fact, they ask him, verse 21, that his servant said to him, what is this that you have done? You fasted wet for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? Now, David's response shows us another way that God's grace gives us the strength to respond in seasons of pain and grief. And there's actually three of them. I'm not necessarily giving these to you in a form of an outline, but just we see three of these responses that David shows us. The first one is that he, he has entered into the house of the Lord, okay? The second one is that he has resumed his normal routines. He started eating again. And here's the third one. Here's the third one. He has accepted with future hope the perfect plan of God. He has accepted with future hope the perfect plan of God. Notice what he says in verse 22. And he said to them, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. So why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David is accepting the plan of God. In fact, David's acceptance of God's plan in the death of his child shows us that he was content, he was content to trust the wisdom and purposes of God. Kathleen and I have lost two children to miscarriage. To this day, we we don't know why it happened, and some of you walked with us through that. It was such an emotional time in our lives because we had just told the church on Sunday that uh, there was a new member joining Laurel. You know, we did the whole reveal thing, and everybody rejoiced with us because Kathleen and I were married quite a few years before we could even have children, even beginning to wonder if we would be able to have children. I was on Sunday, Monday, my wife began the process of miscarrying our first child. So I went into this emotional high on Sunday to having to get back up in the church on Wednesday to tell our church that this had happened. And then it happened again, a second time, which was really a lot more severe than the first physically for my wife. You know, I've... I've I've questioned a lot of things in those days, especially looking back, wondering and thinking whether or not God had done this in order to get my attention about something. Did I do something wrong? As we often like to think, 
when afflictions come. But with God's grace and help, Kathleen and I accept it. With God's grace, we accept it. With future hope, the perfect plan of God for our family. We trusted his wisdom and his purposes. And I emphasize future hope because we knew. We knew that just because we never got to meet them on this earth did not mean we wouldn't see them again. In fact, if you ask me how many kids I have today, I got six kids. I got two hanging out with Jesus. I often wonder what they look like. I do. I think about that. Do they have my stunningly beautiful red hair? Why are you laughing so loud? You're not allowed to do that. Do they have mom's temperament? Of course, we know they're perfect, obviously, so they're just like their mother. We've all gone through different experiences, but there's a lot of us that resonate, perhaps not with the sin, but with the experience of grief that David is going through. Richard Phillips on this passage related to the grief of losing children, I think it's an important verse because we often use it, right? We go to this verse for hope whenever we've lost a child. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Richard Phillips, he, he's a pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm greatly helped by his works. He, he, he wrote down these four things. Let me just share them with you. Number one, David shows us the value of godly grief, but he also avoided bitterness and anger. It's a great point. We see the value of godly grief while David also avoided the danger of bitterness and anger. Secondly, David reminds us that death does not sever our relationship with children who have died. It's not the end. It's temporary. It's temporary. The third thing he writes down is grieving parents should trust that their children in heaven are better provided for by God than they could have been with us. And then the fourth thing he notes here, when children die, especially in infancy, we may assume that God is sparing them from perilous earthly events, perhaps in this way, saving their souls. Think about it like this. It gives us some comfort in knowing that our first two children never had to breathe one ounce of a sinful, fallen air. It's important to consider because this is what David is saying. He's not going to come back to me, but I will one day go to him. This is the strength grace gives. But let's look finally this evening at the peace restoration provides. Again, I'm giving you one word, right? We have heartache. We have grace. Finally, we have peace. Peace. 
Verses 24 and 25 is where we see this piece. And these, these two verses are remarkable to me. In fact, I've been so excited about just sharing them with you tonight because it shows us the miracle of God's grace. It's the icing on the cake, so to speak, of David's restoration. Because think about it. Up to this point, we've been looking at the consequences of David's sin. But this, perhaps, is the consequences of God putting away David's sin. And we have to view both of these in light of God's grace. There are the consequences that sin brings, but there are consequences to to God putting away our sin for not punishing us with judgment as a result of our confession and faith in Him. So so follow me. You're going to have to look at this right there in your Bibles. You can't take my word. If you take my word for it, you're going to miss it. Look at it right there in your Bible. Verse 24. Here's the first thing. Then... David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. His wife. Did you notice that? For the first time since she has appeared in the entire narrative, Bathsheba is not called the wife of Uriah. It was just a couple of verses ago. She was still called the wife of Uriah. Instead, now she's called David's wife. How is this possible? Because God put away David's sin. And God gave him peace. And that grace and that peace marked a new beginning for David's life. A new beginning for Bathsheba. A new beginning for their home and their marriage because that's the amazing, scandalous grace of God. That even when we've made a royal mess of things, God loves to pick up the broken pieces, put it back together, and send us forward in His gracious peace. The one who was once through sin, the adulterous wife of Uriah, is now through peace, grace, and forgiveness. The wife of David. Oh, but there's more. Look again at verse 24. It's the same phrase. Did you notice that David comforted Bathsheba? He comforted her. Well, what's the big deal? Well, obviously, you've never been married. Especially if you're asking that question. First, I see that he began to actually treat her as a wife, not a fling. Now, there's no detail here, okay? But I think it's impossible, impossible for David not to have opened up to Bathsheba about all that has happened behind the scenes. At some point, David's confessed to Bathsheba. He's told her what he did. And the death of Uriah. And that their child dying is the result of his sin. So imagine how naturally that would have made her feel. Perhaps a few weeks of coldness. A few weeks of sleeping on the couch, if you know what I mean. Wondering whether or not this king is even worth being with any longer. 
I don't know if you've ever been there, fellows, in your marriage where you have tried to comfort your wife after an argument and she's just not ready to be comforted. All right? So let's think about it practically. Now we see Bathsheba allowing David, allowing David to comfort her. She is warmly welcoming his embrace, his words. How is this possible? After all that she now knows that he has done, there's only one way that it's possible. God put away David's sin. And he gave his wife indescribable peace, so much peace that their marriage was no longer affected by David's sin. You see, some of you have been in situations, even in your own marriage, that you know exactly what we're talking about here. To be sinned against in such a way that you begin to think things will never be the same, but yet in God's indescribable, marvelous, magnificent grace, He just comes and breathes peace into a broken marriage that can be better than it's ever been before. They moved forward in peace with God and one another. This is good. Let me give you another one. Verse 24, next he went into her and laid with her. Okay? There's nothing now illegitimate about this relationship. That's what the author is saying. They're married. They've been forgiven. God has granted them grace and peace. And now, uninhibited, they can enjoy one another by regular expressions of marital love. That's about all I can say about that with teenagers in the room, all right? That do good? Is that good? All right, that's good. So how is it possible that they can enjoy what was once wrong about their relationship, but now right about it? How is it possible? Because God put away David's sin, and God gave their marriage peace. Peace with him. Oh, but that's not all. Continue on. Now she bore a son. He called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So she bears a son. This is what grace does. This is what grace does. Look, God afflicted a son. Now he gives them a son. I don't know why God took our first two children. But now God has been so gracious to give us Kate and Keegan and Ellie and Jaden. That's it, isn't it? We're done, are we? Right? I think so. I think so. This is grace. They gave birth to a son. Now, you're not going to catch this on the surface. You've got to do a little bit of homework to catch this. But don't worry. I did the homework for you. That's what I'm here for. They called his name Solomon. Do you know where the word Solomon comes from in Hebrew? Shalom. Do you know what shalom means in Hebrew? Peace. 
Oh, this is amazing. I don't know how choosing the names of your children went in your marriage, but it was no walk in the park with us. It took us some time to get there, except with Jaden. He was the quickest and the easiest one. And you know the story. We get a phone call on Sunday night. There's this baby being bored. Do you want him? So we get in the car. We're on our way to the hospital. And finally, we looked at each other through a long series of events between that time and that point, and we finally said, you know what? We haven't even talked about a name yet, which usually doesn't go good. We go through a lot of, yeah, I don't like that. No, that's not good. I'm never naming my kid that and vice versa. I mean, it just on and on. Sometimes we're to the moment where they're coming out into the world, and we're finally deciding on a name that we agree with. That's because I'm always wrong, and she is always right. Always. But with Jaden, it was different. We hadn't even talked about a name yet. Yeah, you're right. We should probably talk about a name. So I'm driving. She's sitting there. We're both kind of scrolling through our phones, seeing what popular baby names are. And we come up with what we come up with. I don't know how it was with you. But here's what I'm thinking. Here, David and Bathsheba, in all that they have experienced, they agree on a name together. They agree on a name together. A name meaning peace. Peace. Do you know what that tells me tonight, church? Not only had God put away David's sin, but the both of them believed that God had put away their sin. That's a whole new step in our relationship with God, isn't it? It's one thing to say, okay, I receive it, but it's another thing to have the assurance of it and the confidence of it and to be able to live my life daily truly believing, yeah, that's what I once was, but I'm no longer that anymore because God has saved me and redeemed me and gave me grace and peace. I'm a new man in Christ. And here we have two individuals broken by sin and crime. They've lost, they've grieved, they've mourned, and God graciously brings them together where the both of them actually believe that God has brought their marriage healing, that God has brought peace into their family. Well, Solomon's not the only name that he received that day. We see that the prophet Nathan came back again. He had a name that God wanted to give the boy as well, Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord loved by the Lord. It's amazing, isn't it? In ways that is hard for our minds to comprehend, God was putting his blessing on a marriage that began in an unholy manner. He gave them peace, and then he reminded them. He reminded them, I'm going to love this child. How is this even possible? How is it even stinking possible? Because God put away David's sin. He restored it. Uh, let me give you something to think about. Uh, David and Bathsheba would have three other children. In fact, of all of David's children, David and Bathsheba's children were the better of the group. Interestingly enough. But he would later have another son whom they named Nathan. Nathan, again, perhaps showing the true heart of David's repentance in that he appreciated God confronting his sin through the prophet Nathan. And now he gives honor to the boldness of Nathan while praising God for the trial, while praising God for the trial 
that brought him grace and peace. Now, the remaining verses, 26 through 31, and I'm done. There's somewhat of an addendum. We're not even going to read them. Perhaps even a bracket to the events of this chapter. This, this chronicle of war may have happened after the firstborn's death. It may have happened after Solomon's birth. It's not totally clear. We don't really know. But here's what I think the author is doing by placing it here in this section. I think he's doing it purposefully. That as David symbolically removes the crown of a king that God has allowed him to defeat and puts it on his head, he's showing us that God is restoring his purposes with David as king of Israel. He put away David's sin. He's keeping his promise, and he will establish David's kingdom forever, just like he said, and in spite of his failure. Oh, that ought to give you hope tonight. Now think about this, and we're going to pray. Sometimes, sometimes we can see more grace in God's affliction. than in the successes that he brings our way. That's no reason to engage in sin and see where it takes you. The point is, if like David, as all of us truly have, if like David, you have royally messed up in your life, there is hope in the grace of God. There is hope in the grace of God. Because Jesus loves to restore people who come to him in confession and repentance. And he does it through heartache, through grace. As he has restored David, he will restore you if you will come to him. And may God do what he needs to do in our hearts as a result of his precious word. Let's stand together for prayer today.